I was telling my editor last night, I think, like, now when I start my next book, I'm going to do it right. And she said that literally every author says that. Yeah. Like when they finish a book, they're like, okay, next time I'm going to get it perfect. What, so, what does that mean in this case? Um, Like budgeting my time well, okay. ca- tackling the book in a rational way instead of just like scribbling a bunch of stuff in a, you know, in a file in Evernote and like. But that's a fun way to do it. It's. I think it's probably the way I'll end up continuing yeah. to do it. But I feel like every time there's that moment where you're like, this time Every day I'm going to write a thousand words. Yeah. It's going to be very organized. And when I get to the tour, I'm going to have everything planned out. I'm not going to be like frantically doing 90 million things while I'm on tour. And um, But yeah, it's I'm excited about this tour. It's starting tonight. We're starting this minute right now. This is exciting to be here at that moment. <laughs> here you are. <laughs> and you're talking, you're talking to my friend Lux tonight at the – Yeah. It's going to be great. I was really excited that she could do it. So I've been a big fan of hers for a long time. I think last time we talked, which again was like two or three years ago, I think we were kind of talking about this book. At least the, the sort of the seeds had the been germs. planted. You know? Yeah. I finished the book last year around this time. And um, I was writing it basically in 2017, mm-hmm. which was an interesting time to be writing about feminist time travel. And, <laughs> not and time that there's travel like not an interesting time to be writing about that right. very, very specific niche that you've carved out for yeah, yourself. Yeah, it's very a, a small but actually not unpopulated niche. Sure. Um, there's there's actually a, a tradition of feminist time travel stories, and I was. It was nice because. I felt like a lot of people around me were saying things like, we're in the wrong timeline. How did we get into this timeline? Yeah. And so that was the question I kind of wound up trying to answer is, how how do we get into timelines? And Darkest how do we... timeline was floated a lot. Yeah. I mean, people said that a lot. And um, one of the questions I raised in this book is, what does it actually mean to be in a dark timeline? Yeah. Like, whose timeline is dark? And, yeah. you know, there's always someone who is having a great time, even when a bunch of other people are sad. Um, and the alternate history in this novel is dark in some ways, but some things are better. Um, the characters are living in a United States where women and freed slaves got the vote at the same time. Mm. So Harriet Tubman, our great war hero of the Civil War, became a senator in 1880. And so women have had voting rights for about two generations longer. And it's changed the way feminism works. It's changed pop culture. Um, The characters go to see uh, Wonder Woman movies instead of Batman movies Mm -hmm. in the 1990s, which is, I think, an alternate timeline we can all (laughs) – we all wish that Tim Burton had taken us to that timeline. And and also the punk rock scene that a lot of the characters are in is much more – Um, intersectional. There's a lot of bands that are fronted by women of color. Mm -hmm. And I kind of, I wanted to have this sort of idea that, you know, culture can be more progressive in some ways and less progressive in other ways. And so the characters are also in a timeline where abortion is not legal in the Mm -hmm. United States. So a lot of people reading the book are like, oh my God, it's the darkest timeline. I'm like, except for the fact that like Harriet Tubman was a senator in the 19th century, which changes the way we think of history. There is a conscious effort to be a little more nuanced about it. Because obviously like the tendency when you're writing dystopian fiction is to really just kind of go all in on it, that everything is bad. Like the Donald Trump timeline in Back to the Future too, where it's just everything is bad. (laughs) President Biff. Yeah. And I think 
Yeah, and I mean, although even in the Biff timeline, I mean, Biff is having a great time. Sure. Like, Biff and, sure. his, and his children, yeah. um, who probably have clothing lines. But, and, it, but it's not just the bad guys won. It's like, you know, there's some okay stuff happening. Yeah, and that was kind of what I wanted to deal with, because I think we have a tendency when things go wrong, um, or when we feel, when some of us feel that things have gone wrong, to say everything is garbage, yeah. and to not remember that actually... You know, things are nuanced. Things are complicated, you know. So you could have a timeline that's really screwed up in some ways, but also kind of better in other ways. And um, mucking around with history the way my time travelers do, you know, could screw up some of the good things. That's sort of one of my issues with this idea of darkest timeline is when you say that, you're essentially saying, well, this is as bad as it could get. And you kind of need to gird yourself from the fact that it could get a lot worse, and in some ways it is getting worse. Yeah, and one of – and again, in in my novel, that's one of the things I play with. And the, the novel is mostly centered on two characters, Tess, who's a time traveler, and Beth, who is a, a teenage riot girl who's kind of stuck in time. She's living through high school in the mm. 1990s. But there's a couple of other characters who's who are also time travelers whose stories crop up in the book, and they kind of get chapters where they talk about their experiences. And through their eyes – we see that there have been much darker timelines. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a timeline where women never got the vote. And one of the characters talks about that, about how she grew up in a timeline where women didn't have the vote. And because of her activism and her um, sneakily changing the timeline, women did wind up getting the vote. In fact, they got the vote even earlier than they they did in, in our timeline where we had to wait until like 1919. Like, what kind of bullshit is that? So, um, I mean, it was... <laughs> There's so much bullshit in history. Sure. I, I don't mean to pick that out as being no, like, no, the that's worst fair. of the bullshit. No, that's fair. Well, um, slavery also was bad. <laughs> yeah, I think we're going to say like, that's sort of number one yeah. bad. Um, and, um, and of course, on top of a lot of other stuff. Yeah. So, I think that it's not a contest, but it is a question of um, perspective, like different – depending on your perspective, the timeline looks a lot different. And so that was kind of fun to play with, just how the characters, depending on where they've grown up, when they've grown up, what timeline they've grown up in, they have a really different view of how bad it really is. It's like relativism through – the spectrum of time travel. Yeah, exactly. And characters who are living, you know, in the distant past, which we do visit in this book, you know, have a radically different view mm. of what a good or a bad timeline is. So um, so we're constantly – every time I – you know, we in the story start to feel like, okay – the timeline is getting better. We end up visiting another perspective or another timeline where it's like, oh, <laughs> now everything is, you know, even worse. Or, wow, it's way better. How could it, how could it, how could we make things this good? Is time travel as a thing value neutral in the book? You know. Because I, I feel like most time travel fiction, the author feels a need to, like, ascribe some sort of morality to it. That's a really good question. I was thinking a lot about the idea of dual-use technology, which is something we talk a lot about in Silicon Valley. Not the mm-hmm. show, but sure. <laughs> the actual the location. Place, yeah. <laughs> also in the show, I yeah. suppose. And so a dual-use technology, it's often something that um, entrepreneurs will use to describe things that they know are kind of bad yeah. or that some people really don't like, but they also have really good uses. And like uh, peer-to-peer tech when it first came out when we first had um you know the ability to kind of do file sharing using peer to peer there was a lot of discussion of how like it's not just for piracy it's sure. also for sharing research which is in fact completely true and also 
you know, using using peer-to-peer file sharing improves legally sharing, you mm-hmm. know, media as well. So I think in this book, time travel, the machines themselves, which are not something humans have invented, they're just something humans have discovered in the Earth's crust. And we don't even know if they're machines, but they're certainly, they're sufficiently advanced technology as to be indistinguishable from nature. When and you say we don't know, you're including yourself in that? Yeah, Do you I have don't some really idea? know. Okay. I have some favorite hypotheses, okay. <laughs> but um, I you have, love... You have fan fiction from your own novel? I mean, I, I, I guess I feel like part of the pleasure of science in real life is that there's parts of it that we just don't know the answer to, especially yeah. when you get into things like physics or microbiology, where it's like, we kind of, we know how things work, but we don't know why. Mm. And we often don't know the origins of those kinds of structures or systems. And that's the same thing with the time machine. The characters and I know how they work and how to kind of open them up and jump into the wormhole and go into the past. But they don't know if someone built those machines. The machines seem to be about half a billion years old. They're built into rock formations. And it's maybe it's tech. Maybe it's natural. Uh, maybe it's some combination. There's a little bit of Stargate-y-ness to there. For sure. Yeah. yeah. I'm a Stargate fan. Yeah. So, no, they're totally it – is, it is that sort of it's an ancient alien tech. Yeah. Except it's even weirder than Stargate because there's no giant hoop that you can jump through and program. Yeah. Um, although they do they do actually eventually find a kind of a hoop that is a little Stargate-y. Like they go back in time and they find the original interface for the machine, which is not really a spoiler. So I guess my point is – that the machines, they're maybe not neutral, but they're a fact of nature. There's something that people in my story, people have been traveling through time throughout recorded human history. We don't know of any time when humans weren't doing it. So it's a heavily, heavily edited timeline. Time travel is really normal. And, um, you know, surprisingly, things are not that different from our timeline, which maybe that's a plot hole, but I'm the author, so I get to do that. That's interesting, though. It does seem like all of the value judgments that are passed on time travel are a result of the fact that it is not a thing that exists. You know, this idea of sort of going back and, like, affecting the timeline, the reason why it's a huge faux pas is because it's just – it's not a thing that's taken for granted. Right. It's something that somebody invents, right? So we've been going along innocently in our unchanged timeline, and then suddenly someone comes along, builds a machine, and starts mucking Mm -hmm. around. And so that, I think, raises really different questions than – We've grown up as a civilization on a planet where time travel is a thing that can happen. And, you know, science can learn more about it and refine it and figure out how to do it better. But we really – we're still just trying to figure out why it happens. And and so we don't – there's no sort of like should we or shouldn't we. It's like, oh, well, we've been doing this already for 10,000 years. Was part of the decision-making on that front just to sort of like not have to deal with those kind of cliched approaches toward time travel to just have it something that like – it's taken for granted up front. You don't have to deal with the moral quandaries and you can just tell your story. Well, there's a ton of moral quandaries in this story. Yeah, because but not they those are, like specific ones right, that are dealt with It's not the quandary over. of like to travel or not travel. Yeah. It's more like what do we do when we travel? Okay, there's a couple reasons I did it. One is that for a really long time, I've wanted to write about the idea of a heavily edited timeline. Like what would it be like to live in a timeline where you knew mm. that people had been screwing around with history forever? Because... For me, that's kind of how it feels to live in our timeline. I feel like history 
is constantly being revisited and rewritten. You know, some people will talk about making America great again, and which is calling upon a notion of history that I never experienced. Yeah. But some people did. You know, for some people, they see they they kind of have edited together a history in their own minds where America was was great for them. And then there's also people who are. Uh, doing the work of excavating histories that we've either forgotten mm. or suppressed. Um, I loved the um, all of the articles that came out um, around the anniversary of the first slaves being brought mm-hmm. to the United States, like re-examining that history and telling histories that centered slaves and centered slave rebellions and centered all of the movements around abolition and talked about how much they fit into these much bigger movements in the U.S. that have always been thought of as basically movements led by white people. Which, which as a side note, was taken by people on the right to be an act of political aggression, to just tell those stories. And that's exactly right. I mean, it's I wouldn't call it an act of political aggression, but I would call it a political act for yeah. sure. And that's how my characters see time travel. It's a political act for them. Going back and changing the timeline is a political act. Many of the characters raise questions, and I raise questions as a writer about whether, in fact, they even are changing the timeline. One of the possibilities, because they don't know how these time machines work, is that the time that time itself is constantly changing, and we don't know. But when when we go into these machines, it's not that we're changing things; it's that the machines give us a vantage point to see time as it's shuffling around naturally. And so it's kind of like looking into a microscope that shows you, oh, look, this one time chunk of the timeline has been discarded, and a new one has been added due to the way the due to the physical functioning of the universe, because that's just what happens to linear time. But normally, you don't notice. I'm picturing the writing process for this book being like one of those. Um you know, when the cops are trying to catch a serial killer and you've got all the pieces of, like, yarn on a giant board. I mean, it's like (laughs) you're playing three-dimensional chess. You're trying to tell these stories, but also you're, like, grappling with these uh, so many moving pieces. Yeah, it's – that was one of the fun things about the book. It's it's definitely also the part of it that worries me the most because I do feel like there's a lot of stuff going on in the Mm -hmm. book. There's there's these political questions. There's these – ways that the characters are sort of talking about physical science and, you know, how the universe works, which is kind of an apolitical thing. Um, and and then there's a personal story of a teenage girl who's just growing up and trying to survive living in an abusive home, going to a crappy high school. And so there's these very personal stories. There's these, like, universe brain stories. <laughs> and they they all intersect. And they do intersect quite strongly. It's not like people kind of are off in their own places and never meet. Um, And that's kind of the point of the book, too, is that, you know, the way that we change history is through collective action. And so you've got to have, I felt like you have to have a lot of moving pieces and bring them together to show what collective action really looks like on a cosmic scale. And so maybe... Maybe I bit off too much. <laughs> How much editing did you do? I mean, did a lot of it end up on the uh, cutting room floor? It did. There, is, there were whole chapters that I had to edit out that were – because, as I said, there's a few chapters in there that are from the perspective of different time travelers. Um, and one of them, which was actually about – I kind of loved it. And maybe I'll publish it as a short story. But it was about – women um, in the 1950s working at Stanford and dealing with like sexist computer scientists at Stanford. And it was very much kind of subtweeting certain 
poli- yeah. certain um, computer scientists that worked at Stanford. Yeah. Um, and it was just – it was mostly amusing for me as someone who's written a lot about computers. So, so yeah, and my editor, Lindsay Hall um, at Tor, she made me – I mean, she didn't make me. She invited me <laughs> to rewrite it about four times. And, you Jesus. know, a couple of those were pretty heavy revisions. Sounds and painful. It was actually great. Yeah. I mean, the book is so much better. Like, it was – I'm not saying it was a mess before, but it was – it definitely really benefited from, like, a deep revision and then some polishing because it's – I mean, that's the thing about time travel. I promised <laughs> myself – I was like – I will never write a time travel novel because of the thing you were saying about like the string and the wall. And like, I talked to um, Lauren Bucus who wrote the shining girls, which Mm -hmm. is another amazing feminist time travel novel. And she told me that she had like shit taped to the walls, like everything, like had like a million note cards. And I was like, Oh my God, I'm never doing that. And then I did. And so I got what I signed up for. Did you do that? Like were, were you actually taping things to walls? I was not, I I was using, you know, just Evernote and I was using um, just writing things in a document. But I did have a pretty big document where I was having to, I mean, basically just write down things so I would stay in continuity because there's multiple continuities in the book because the timeline changes. There's only one timeline, but like it changes a lot or, well, it changes a little, but it's a lot. These characters' lives are really affected by the small changes. And so... Um, and I also had to do a ton of historical research. So so I called a lot of people on the phone and took notes about everything from, like, Petra Jordan in the first century BCE to, you know, how wormholes work. <laughs> so there was – it was um, – there was a lot of note-taking is what I'm trying to say. You spoke to to scientists ahead of time to kind of – it sounded like part of your research pro- – process was trying to get them to kind of to like justify that time travel was a thing that's possible and give you the green light to write about it i did do that um so i talked to sean carroll who is a terrific um cosmologist he has he has a book out a new book out now too uh, about the origins of space time so just a small topic and so i talked to him and i talked to adam becker who's another excellent physicist and both of them I was like okay I'm gonna do time travel and I'm gonna do it like totally accurately and how do I do that and both of them were just they were very gentle and kind and they were just kind of like that's that's not a thing yeah you can't you can't actually do that Adam said look it's not a scientific device it's a literary device and Sean did give me permission to use (laughs) wormholes he was kind of like he was like, fine, if you're going to do this, like, a wormhole is as good as anything. Yeah. So because basically because of the fact that we don't really know how wormholes work. And so it's one of those things, kind of like my time machines, where uh-huh. it's like, well, it could do that. Like, it could be full of caramel corn or maybe time travel. <laughs> I hope it's both. It's like, you're going to need some caramel corn where you're going. So, um, yeah, so it was it, – it is not – the the only part of these time machines that is very rigorously scientifically accurate is the way the scientists interact with it. And I've talked to many scientists interacting with phenomena that they don't understand and that are and scientists who are trying to build hypotheses about everything from like the fabric of the universe to um, how ancient civilizations functioned and at the core of a lot of that scientific work is always a big question mark, which mm. is, look, we can say 
we can say what's true up to a certain point, but then there's just stuff we don't know. And so and so that's how all of the scientists are interacting with the machines. They're like, well, we can use it, but we don't know where it comes from or how it works. And um, and that felt to me like almost mundane, like so real as to be almost like it could just be a realist novel because except for the time travel yeah. part, but because of the fact that, you know, and they're having to do things like get grants to use the time machines and, you know, argue with their department heads over how they're going to conduct their research. You wanted to like make in a way, make it unsexy to just make it sort of like a fact of life and to, to wrap it up in with bureaucratic red tape. Yeah. I wanted it to be really mundane. Um, and I think that's one of the things that I've seen a lot in time travel novels lately and time travel stories is this idea that it's really mundane. One of the reasons I loved Ryan Johnson's movie Looper Mm -hmm. was because of the fact that the time travel was so kind of just like gritty and working class and mundane. And it was not like, it's a fancy, shiny machine that we made in our steampunk basement. It's like, nope, it's gangsters who are using it. Um, And, you know, they're going to use it to cut off your fingers retroactively, which is like a scene that will be burned into my mind forever. It's fiction, but why was it important to ground it in that way? Well, I'm a science journalist, and I've spent, you know, most of my adult life writing about science as a, you know, as a nonfiction endeavor. Yeah. Obviously, you draw the line between the two. You know when you're writing fiction. I do. You know, my my heart is in science journalism. And so I think part of the reason why I wanted that to have those conversations with scientists was Basically to make sure that if there were a scientifically accurate way to do this, that I was doing it. And what I found was there wasn't a scientifically okay. accurate way. And so so my choice at that point was chuck the idea of time travel and do something that's more hard science – like that's more hard SF like my previous novel, Autonomous, which I think is pretty – all of it is quite plausible except – for maybe a couple of different things. Yeah, but, I mean, like you fudge the like the timeline there a little bit, right? Yeah, I felt like the AI came a little sooner than I think it would, yeah. but I I do stand by the fact that all of that stuff is plausible based on the tech and the science that we have now. Whereas this is just something that I don't think anyone really believes it could happen. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think any reputable physicist would be like, "Why, well, yes, time travel is right around the corner." Or they might say it in the same way that they say, sure, dinosaurs could reappear out of thin air. Because, you know, obviously there's ways that the universe works that we don't understand. But at the same time, it's very unlikely, (laughs) statistically unlikely. And so... Um, so I wanted, yeah, I think it was, it was my, my hard science fiction writer impulse to be like, how can I make this feel scientific and realistic? And then, um, that kind of butting up against the fact that I also wanted to just write this fantasy about changing history and how it feels to have your own history rewritten by other people, which is something that we've all experienced, you know, when when someone in power tells you that something hasn't happened, and you know, it has, that's, that's that, that's the experience that I wanted to bring into the book. And that's not a very scientific experience. It sounds like the timing was, I don't know if fortunate is the right word, because of yeah, obviously, what's been happening is unfortunate, but I, I guess serendipitous. You had the seeds of this before Trump was really before the timeline changed radically. Yeah, I had been. I mean, I've actually parts of this novel I've been thinking about for a really long time, for like decades. Um, Did this accelerate the process? Not really. I mean, what happened was it made it feel more urgent. So I knew that I wanted to tell this story and I had been toying with it for a long time. And then in 2017, I just, 
I was just filled with, you know, rage and sadness and like a lot of feelings that, you know, it's not really healthy to express except in yeah. fiction. Um, yeah. I mean, sure, I could express them by like... Or screaming into your yeah, pillow. Yeah, exactly, screaming into my pillow. But, you know, instead of going out and actually murdering people, sure. um, which is, in fact, immoral and illegal, I decided to just do that in fiction. But I, I do find that, like, a lot of my best writing does come from anger and rage. So maybe that was part of it. <laughs> What's the significance of the Columbian Exposition? So... It's a hinge point in history. Um, It happened in 1893 in Chicago. It was the first World's Fair in the U.S. um, And it was also, uh, importantly, the first time that belly dancing came to the United States. And belly dancing became a really important part of burlesque performance. The part of the World's Fair that was called the Midway Plaisance uh, <laughs> um, which was also called the Midway. It was kind of the opposite of the white city that you normally hear about. Th- at the this World's is the Fair. World's Fair where the guy made the murder house, right? It it's is. The same one. Although okay. there's some debate over sure. how much of a murder house it but really was. But the devil in the white city. The is... devil in the white city. And the white city is the part of the World's Fair that had all of the scientific exhi- um, exhibitions, mm-hmm. all of the stuff about like progress and technology, the electricity, dynamos, exactly, yeah. which um, became so important and influenced so many writers. And then the Midway was where you could go see a dancing girl and get some beer and buy a cheap trinket. And in fact, it was so influential that carnival culture kind of grew out of it. And when you hear about carnivals, often people will talk about being on the midway at a carnival, mm-hmm. which is where all of the freaks are and, the, again, the strippers and the burlesque. That comes from hmm. that place, the midway at the Chicago World's Fair, um, which people called the Columbian Exposition at the time. So there was this incredibly important event for for feminism that happened at this fair, which often doesn't get talked about, which is that Anthony Comstock, who was a moralist who was trying to suppress birth control and trying to suppress abortion and representations of, of sexuality. Just a real piece of shit. He was a, he was a, a crappy guy. Yeah. I just wrote an article about him for the New York Times. So if you Google Anthony Comstock. New York Times, you can learn all about his his horrible activist tactics. He He's also got of, a good name for a villain. He Comstock does. is just such a good. Right. <laughs> and actually, in Bioshock Infinite, there's a bad guy who takes the name Comstock. Mm. And he he's a very Comstockian dude. I think it's clearly a reference to Anthony Comstock. And so, um, so anyway, Comstock was kind of terrorizing the country at that time. And he was spying on people's mail to find immoral uh, you know, kinds of pieces of immoral writing. So he comes to Chicago because he's heard that there's this nasty place on the Midway where girls are doing belly dances, which are is a dance that at the time was being called the Hoochie Coochie. <laughs> and he witnessed a belly dance and was so horrified and shocked that he went to the courts and tried to get the entire Midway shut down. And um, had he been successful, it would have absolutely changed the course of one aspect of feminist history, Hmm. which is a kind of, which is a part of history, which is about reproductive rights, but also the right of women to be sexually expressive and kind of own their own sexual expression. And um, the city of Chicago was like, excuse me, we are making a lot of money. And an injunction was immediately filed, and he was stopped. And my alternate timeline hinges on what happened at that moment. Like, did the city of Chicago win or not? And my characters are trying to 
make sure that Comstock is not successful and kind of save the belly dancers. Save the belly dancers. Save the timeline. So I really, I wanted to recreate this historical event in the historic city of Chicago because it was huge. It made a big, big difference to um, basically the history of women's reproductive rights, but Mm -hmm. it's really orthogonal to it. You know, we don't normally think of the rights of belly dancers as being connected to our right to get an abortion or our right to buy condoms. It was also capitalism that kept it going, which is kind of an interesting wrinkle there. Yeah, sex work. It's not like it was a moralistic argument that was being made. You know, it was obviously it wasn't a feminist women's rights argument. Well, it was but there making money. Were there was an aspect of that who were involved. Yeah. So there was certainly. You're absolutely right. The the common sense argument was we're making a buck and yeah. we're going to keep making a buck and we want to keep this um, midway open. But a lot of the women who were involved in that struggle um, were connected with. You know, Chicago had a really strong anarchist movement. Lucy Parsons, who uh, was a leading light in that movement was, you know, one of the few women who was uh, in a position of power within leftist politics. And she was in Chicago and she was partly connected with uh, the people who would have been uh, supporting these belly dancers. Although I should say Lucy Parsons herself was not particularly crazy about this idea. She wasn't really into free love and sexual liberation, unlike um, Emma Goldman in New York, who was very uh, psyched about it. She more of like a Margaret Sanger kind of. She was, you know, Lucy was inter- Lucy Parsons was yeah. interested in workers' rights, and if that okay. touched on women's rights, that's great. But workers were the primary focus. But there were also there was a huge spiritualist community in Chicago, which was deeply interested in women's sexuality. And Ida Craddock, who was eventually driven to suicide because Anthony Comstock was um, persecuting and prosecuting her, um, she uh, wrote about the belly dancers at the Midway. Uh, and popularized belly dancing. And so, and that partly that was why Comstock went after her. But she was heavily involved in, um, again, trying to protect those belly dancers to keep the the midway going. Um, and she was a feminist. And, you know, so she, that, that was a moment where mm-hmm. she was not in it for the money. Like she could not have cared less about that. She was interested in women's um, erotic expression and just how that was part of um, women's liberation in general. And so um, there's a character in my novel who's sort of loosely based on Ida Craddock, who kind of shows up and, and raises hell. So it's complicated is what I'm trying to say. It's super complicated. The Chicago World's Fair is w- this place where Women's reproductive rights come together with capitalism, come together with anti-racism and pro-immigrant sentiment, comes together with anarchism. Um, There's just a lot of stuff crisscrossing at that moment. And it's a moment when people are coming from all over the world to Chicago to see this incredible World's Fair. And so it's it's a turning point in all kinds. It's a turning point culturally. Like it may not be strictly political, but um, it really changed a lot. It changed the music scene too. Like the music scene in Chicago just blew up after Mm. the World's Fair and um, which is one of the things I I researched a lot for the book. And so it was just super interesting to me because all this stuff was going on. And I feel like partly because of The Devil in the White City, that book was so popular. People just think of it as this moment when like a bunch of dudes did some stuff, mostly killing ladies. And I'm like, also a bunch of ladies did some stuff, mostly defeating shitty dudes. And like, changing the course of history in the process because that was really the moment when Anthony Comstock's star started to fade. And so, you know, it it was it was an interesting time. I wish I could have um, been there on the midway to see those belly dancers. So you're finding these kind of pivotal moments where, like, 
obviously, as you said, it's one timeline, but like where like hypothetically these things would kind of fork off in either direction. But you have to have, also have to find something where you want to occupy that headspace for a while, right? Because you were living in that world for a while, it sounds like. I was. That was not pleasant. <laughs> I really don't like the 19th century. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I really liked the women who lived there, um, especially, you know, the ones that I was kind of evoking in this book. And I, I love that they were, you know, it's because of the work that women did at that time that I'm able to be who I am now. Mm. And I'm fucking grateful. I am so grateful to them. And, and that's, again, part of what this book is about is sort of um, how we support each other across the generations, even if we don't realize it, you know, even if we never meet those women who lived 120 years ago, mm. things that they did are still important and we're still carrying on their work. And so that was the part to me that was very moving about it, was getting to kind of see and read about how their struggles were very similar to what we're facing now. The term free love was like invented in the 1870s, <laughs> which I think is hilarious. Um, it was not a Woodstock invention. It was not. And um, it was, yeah, invented about 100 years before that. And and so, you know, a lot of the debates at that time were a lot more sophisticated than we realize. Like we think, oh, they were Victorian. Women were just literally fighting to be to get the vote. And yeah. it's like, yeah, but they were also fighting to like, you know, engage in sexual expression and like dance naked if they want to and um, and kind of have sex positive feminism. So which, again, sounds very anachronistic, but isn't. So, yeah, I mean, going to the 19th century that much in my head was really quite annoying. Um, and I, you know, I, I coped with it by creating these spaces in the book that are very realistic, that did exist, um, where, you know, someone like me could have fit in. You wrote yourself safe spaces in the book? (laughs) Well, I wrote safe spaces (laughs) that actually existed. You know, I think anyone who is, anyone who is queer or is, uh, you know, an immigrant or is in some sense uh, marginalized, Mm -hmm. um, a person of color, you know, anytime you go to a new place, you always have to kind of look for spots where you feel safe. Like when I go to a new city, I always try to find like the immigrant neighborhood because mm. I know I'm going to feel safer in the immigrant neighborhood. And so that's kind of what I did in the 19th century. I was like, OK, where are all the immigrants? Where are the queer people? <laughs> where are the people who are dancing naked? Um, that's my safe space. And also, you know, where are the anarchists? Where where are the universities? So I found all of that was like immediately what I did. I was like, okay, where was the University of Chicago? Where did the anarchists hang out? Okay, this is good. Now yeah. I know where I can go in 1893. And my characters will feel safe because of course, these characters are modern characters that have come through the time machine. So um, yeah, so yeah, I, I found the safe spaces in history. Speaking of um, sort of like occupying a, a bad place, this is something I was talking to, to Lux about actually recently, you know, because she's done lots of writing about incels. That is a hard rabbit hole to go down to like live in that world for a little bit. Yeah. No, I um, I, I read um, Elliot Rogers' uh, autobiography um, when I was preparing to write this book. Um, manifesto, really. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's more of an autobiography. I mean, mm. it is a manifesto, but he, he tells the story of his life. Yeah. And it starts when he's a kid and he's super happy and he sort of talks about when he became sad. And He's like the original black pillar, really. 
Yeah, he's um, – I think incels call him like uh, Gentleman Elliot and he, he murdered a bunch of women in San Diego where yeah. he was a college student. Um, and he was super troubled. I mean he was – he knew he was mentally ill. His family knew he was mentally ill. It wasn't like – I mean yes, he had a, a political position but he also – you know, he um, did have mental health problems. And so, yeah, so there's a character in the book named Elliot who is a com stalker. And he's not supposed to be Elliot Roger, but it's a bit of an homage. And, so to speak. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, so to speak. And um, I actually was surprised at how much of Elliot Roger's sort of manifesto bits, which come at the end of his mm-hmm. of his piece that he wrote, um, sound almost exactly like something that Anthony Comstock would have said. Mm-hmm. Like he really was a Comstocker. Like he wanted women to be rounded up in camps and yeah. made available to men, you know, only for, you know, sex and reproduction. I, it was it was quite stunning. I doubt that Elliot Roger knew about Anthony Comstock, but they're still, you know, two, um, you know, angry, desperate men uh, on either side of this kind of timeline who um, who were kind of trying to do the same thing. Kindred spirits. Kindred spirits. I mean, I think that's why Comstock you, had so much rhetoric in his writing about driving women to suicide. He was really interested in doing that. It was like one of his favorite kind of ways to vanquish his opponents. And, um, and indeed, he did drive women to suicide, like Ida Craddock. And I think and that language gets used in the incel community a lot, like against feminists, that they want feminists to, to die, to commit suicide. And so, yeah, I feel like there's a strand of radical anti-feminist thought that has continued almost unchanged for at least 150 years in the United States. And um, and I want to be very clear that it's a, a United States thing. Like, I think it's something maybe a little bit in Canada, too, but it's something that we cooked up here. It's some part of our history that... I mean, obviously, like, women are oppressed throughout the world and queer people are oppressed throughout sure. the world. How is our strain different? Um, I mean... It's true. And I, I think our type, we have our own special form of oppression here. And I mean, I think it grows out of, you know, the origins of the country with Puritanism, hmm. which has always been uh, a very sort of pleasure denying patriarchal part of Christianity. Like Christianity can be a lot of different things, including spiritualism. Like Ida Craddock, the spiritualist, was a Christian. This is this is a strand, a very sort of um you know, the darkest timeline of Christianity, I guess. Crusades were pretty bad. Yeah, no, that was that was not good. Um, but I mean, I, within the context of the United yeah. States, um, where we haven't had um, anything like the, the Crusades. Um, so I think that that's part of it. Um, I think that uh, I really do think that, that there was this inflection point in U.S. history in the 19th century when Congress decided to give free black men the vote, freed slaves who were men the vote, and not give it to women. I think that um, led to a lot of toxicity, um, a lot of, it of course divided the movement, it divided the movement for civil liberties and civil rights for minority groups and women. But I think it led to a lot of um, resentment between Mm. men and women that kind of hardened and and became politicized at that time. Um, so, you know, and I think there's a lot of other ineffable stuff that we that maybe I, you know, would probably take like a dissertation to, to go into. Yeah. But I do think that we have this puritanical anti-feminist strain of culture in the United States that's kind of unique. 
I mean, we've exported it pretty well, too. <laughs> like, that's the thing is American culture has been so widely consumed around the world that um, it's definitely spread. But I think that it's it's interesting to kind of hone in and just be like, okay, well, what is wrong with this, with gender in the United States specifically? And what what were the historical moments where it really screwed up, where we really screwed up? Um and so, and when I say we screwed up, what I mean is when we really screwed up the relationships between men and women and the hmm. relationships between feminism and mainstream culture and things like that. Occupying both these difficult moments in time uh, and also like doing research into black pill culture must have been mentally taxing. But when, when you, when you come through all of it on the other side, when, when the, when the book is finished, do you ultimately feel hopeful yeah. No, I mean, this is a book about hope, actually. Um, we have been talking about a lot of dark stuff. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, the good guys have a win in this book. That's not a spoiler. I want people to know that going in yeah. so that they have, again, it's a little <laughs> bit a little bit of a safe space moment. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to let anyone be screwed over. Um, and, it, you know, it's not a perfect win. It's not like The Wizard of Oz where, like, you know, the witch is dead and, like, therefore everything is great. It's mm-hmm. like one of the witches is dead, kind of, but the witch's followers are still around and, like, they're working on trying to revive the witch. And, you know, so there's – it's not um, – it's sort of the way history works. You know, it's like you have a win, but you have to face the next battle um, and you have to be prepared for, like, weird wrinkles um, yeah. where you wind up facing a bad guy you never thought would exist. One of the lessons that we keep learning over and over again that we've learned recently through progress in the LGBTQ community is that like certain moves forward push other things back. There's a larger societal blowback that, you know, you have a win and that can also lead to terrible things happening. Yeah, it's true. And I think that, you know, we've been talking a lot about how women did not um, get the vote in the 19th century. And part of that was because of an anti-feminist blowback because there were all of these really vocal feminists. Um, In 1872, a woman ran for president, uh, Virginia Woodhull, and she, you know, annoyed the crap out of Congress by going there and advocating for women's suffrage. We don't remember that, you know, none of us lived through that. But yeah, I mean, it's, I think we are seeing the same thing now um, where there's this huge, you know, a backlash against, for example, trans people that we hadn't seen before, you know, it's just yeah. because trans people became more visible. Um, and now there's a new thing for conservatives to be disturbed by and to hate uh, in some cases. And so, yeah, I think we <laughs> it's like the Monty Python routine, like nobody expects yeah. the backlash. And yet we should have. Would there have been a Trump without Obama? Like, Probably not, you know, if, if there hadn't been a, a black person in office for eight years, would Trump have been elected? Like, I, you know, not only did he like rise to prominence as a political figure through birtherism, but all these people were motivated to go to the polls because somebody they thought was like a gay socialist black president was in office for eight years. Yeah, that's right. Um, and I, I mean, there have been a couple of um, scientific studies showing that uh, people were motivated to vote for Trump by racism, basically. Yeah. It wasn't like they were like, his policies are going to be great. It was yeah. just like purely like, I need a white guy. And R- racism that in, in some respects had been kind of dormant for a little while and is now like, for better and worse, is on the surface. Yeah, it had been dormant 
also I think it had been impolite. And so people – it was something that yeah. one didn't talk about publicly. It was something it to be ashamed of. Yeah, to be ashamed of yeah. or just, yeah, to not admit to. Um, and now people are, are feeling really empowered to, to do that. So I think – yeah, and I that's part of what's interesting and tragic about history is that, you know, we look back and it's like, oh, yeah, we should have learned this lesson like 500 years ago or like 5,000 years ago. And we keep relearning it mm. um, and keep being unprepared. You know, that's the temptation of time travel is that maybe we could go back and get it right. You know, we could go back to the origin point of some kind of divergence and fix it so that we don't have the backlash or so that the backlash is easier. I think what what the book gets at and what you've been getting at is that there is no single origin point. There isn't, but there's the temptation. to yeah. Like there's no single origin point, but there's there are these moments of divergence, right? Like there's this moment when... Um, we could have had universal suffrage and we didn't. Freedmen got the got the vote, but but women didn't. Or you know there could have been you know par- half of the Chicago World's Fair could have been shut down, but it mm. wasn't. There is no single origin. And of course, mucking around with history always creates new problems. So yes, it's like you could go back and fix it and be like, great, everything's fine. And then you come back to the present and it's like, oh, something I really liked is gone now. <laughs> they don't make those donuts anymore. <laughs> All of the record stores are gone. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> there you go. Another great conversation with the great Annalie Newitz. Their latest book, The Future of Another Timeline, is out now on tour. Thanks so much to them for taking the time to do that once again. Thanks to you, as always, for listening to the program. If you like the show, there are a number of ways to support us. You can rate and review us on iTunes, Google Podcasts. We're on Spotify and YouTube now. Like us on Facebook. If you have any feedback, it's rwellcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Tumblr. That's rwellcast.tumblr.com. That's the first and best place to get up your R-I-Y-L-related information. And that's about all we got for this week. So stick around because we're going to be back just about this time next week with another episode of R-I-Y-L.